Secondly, uh, do remember all those who had dedicated their lives in faithful service and duty to our country, and so we did not want to pass by that moment without recognizing that. Uh, that is the whole reason for this weekend, um, and just let us not um, forget that, and let's continue to hold those in prayer who have lost loved ones, um, who uh, gave their lives to um, our freedom, and, and so we are certainly grateful for them this morning. Uh, as you prepare your hearts for worship this morning, let me just say it's a joy to be here worshiping with you all. It's a beautiful day, and I'm just grateful to be gathered here this morning with all of you, and I'm happy to see your smiling faces. So, church, let us prepare to worship our Lord, and I want to read to you from Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let us pray together this morning. God, we are so grateful to be together in this place this morning. Lord, we are here to lift your name high to give thanks and praise to you, God, for who you are, what you've done for us, and what you continue to do. Lord, in Sunday school this morning, we contemplated the love of Jesus Christ that met us where we were before we ever had an opportunity to choose him in return, and I'm just overwhelmed with thankfulness this morning. Again, Lord Jesus, that you would give your life for me before I even had the chance to choose you. Let that not be lost on us this morning. God, let us lift your name high because of the great lengths that you've gone to show your love for us. Lord, we love you and we worship you this morning with glad and joyful and sincere hearts. We will make a joyful noise to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's worship together. Please stand and join us in singing worship this morning. Two, one, two, three, four.
this morning. Amen. I just feel compelled to share with you this morning, and I guess I just keep thinking about this because that, that verse in Romans 5, verse 8, just gets me every time. It just gets me every time that the love of God is so great that it would go to the lengths it did before we could ever even know to respond. And I just want you to know this morning that God profoundly loves you. God profoundly loves you, and there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do to change that. His love for you is incredible, and I just don't want that to be lost on us this morning. You are seen by God. You are loved by God. You are cherished by God. When he looks at you, when he looks at us, he said, it is good. It is good. I just want you to know how loved you are by him this morning, and I want to invite you to respond to that love. Let's pray. Lord God, our hearts are humbled this morning. We're humbled at the great love you have for us. Lord, I just pray that we can take a moment and sit in that love. I pray, God, that we would just sit in your presence and receive that love that you are so ready to share with us this morning. Thank you for loving me. Thank you, God, for loving me and my brokenness. Thank you, God, for loving me at my worst and helping to be the best that you created me to be. Thank you, God, for the ways in which you are so present and seen in us and around us. Lord, today we contemplate the Trinity. We contemplate the triune God, God and Father, who created us with, with a love that we will probably never fully comprehend or understand. We contemplate the Son, Jesus Christ, who, who walked among us and who gave his life for us when all we did was nail him to the cross. And we contemplate God, the Holy Spirit, who is so present and alive within us so that no matter where we go, we don't go alone, but you, in fact, go before us and walk beside us, and you're all around us. God, it can be overwhelming to, con to contemplate these things, and I just pray, Lord, that as we open up your word and as we think about these things, I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be very present in this place, helping us to hear from you, hear from your word, not the words I have prepared, God, only the words that you have given me and that you are speaking to all of us. God, we, we long for your presence. We long to dwell in your presence. Would you meet us here today? God, we thank you.
Thank you for loving us. We praise your holy, precious name. And it's in the name of King Jesus that we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, as I said, today is Trinity Sunday. So uh, if you're not familiar with the Christian calendar, sometimes we, uh, or I, rather lean into the rhythms of the liturgical calendar or the Christian calendar. And Trinity Sunday uh, always falls the day after the Sunday after Pentecost. And today is the day in which we celebrate the doctrine of the Trinity. How many of you are excited about that this morning? We're going to celebrate doctrine. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, the three persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm sure most or all of you know this. But just to remind us that the word Trinity that we use so often, it's not found in Scripture. We know this, right? That that word Trinity, you're not going to find that word anywhere in the Bible. But just in case you didn't know, that word Trinity, just this is some free trivia for you this morning, okay? Some Trinity trivia for you on this Trinity Sunday. That word Trinity uh, comes from the Latin word Trinitas, and it means the number three. And it was first used in the third century by Latin theologian Tertullian. Some of you might be familiar with Tertullian. Some of you might have no desire to know who that is, but that is where the word Trinity comes from. And and so when we look at the the Christian calendar and notice Trinity Sunday, and then if you go and look at the lectionary, there are several texts that we could choose from depending on which year we're in uh, when we're talking about the Trinity or when we're preaching about the Trinity. Uh, There's many more than just the ones that are selected on this day, on during this year, uh, you can look all throughout Scripture and see where we uh, where we read about where we see God and Father, Son, and Spirit. And today's passage might feel a little bit surprising to you, but I just want to invite you uh, to really lean into it this morning and really put yourself in this passage. Uh, and we're going to look at the Trinity, if you will, through the eyes of a humble man by the name of Nicodemus. And I'm just going to give you a little disclaimer this morning. I hereby do not declare myself to be uh, any close to an expert on the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? Uh, I contemplate the Trinity, and I wrestle with the Trinity. I wrestle with what it means to understand God in these different ways. And, and so if, if I happen to say something that helps you understand the Trinity in a new way, that's fantastic, but that's not necessarily uh, the goal because I don't claim to be the one who can teach you all that you need to know about the Trinity, okay? But we're instead just contemplating this together. So I want to invite you to stand as we read our passage today found in John chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 15. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it, is, where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with the Spirit. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who comes from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, that passage can feel like a doozy. And um, I don't know how often you contemplate the deep thoughts of the triune God. If you're like me, you probably contemplate that rather often. Maybe you don't, I don't know. But I don't know how often, but I would be willing to bet that you think about it and you contemplate it in your own mind more often than you converse with someone about it. If I, if I had to guess, I'd, I'd guess that, that we tend to think about it within our minds, but, but we don't often talk about the, the complex understanding of the Trinity. I find that often uh, people are intimidated by their understanding of the Trinity or the lack of understanding when it comes to the Trinity. I think a lot of times people are just afraid of looking foolish as we wrestle with the concept of the triune God. I think it's really easy to feel like we understand our minds are so fallible, and we understand that there is so much that we don't understand, it, and we might feel a little bit foolish as we wrestle with this out loud, and so maybe we don't. Maybe you, like me, have heard one too many analogies about the triune God that are meant to help you understand the triune God, but really all it left you feeling was more confused because you found a way to break down the analogy, and you're like, that doesn't work. Uh, that doesn't help me. Was that supposed to be helpful? Because I don't understand. Maybe you've wrestled with that. I would argue, this is just my opinion for what it's worth, I would argue that, that we in the evangelical circle, we try to understand the Trinity in ways that are very black and white. And I think in doing so, we might perhaps limit the ways in which God desires to move in new and fresh ways so that we can see him and understand him better. I think that's where we get messed up sometimes. But then on the other end, we have those who freely imagine the triune God and freely discuss and try to discuss new ways in which we can understand the triune God. And I've seen Christians come out in droves as we kind of attack these outrageous attempts to somehow reimagine the triune God. I'm thinking particularly of a certain book that came out several years ago called The Shack. Do you remember? 
Christians came out and complained, and they were outraged at the dangerous attempts to understand the Trinity that were depicted in this book that was later a major motion picture, actually. And, and I think that maybe when we feel like we're being, when some people feel like, well, I guess I'm not free to try to wrestle with or understand the triune God and in attacking these different ways that people try to understand the triune God, I think it keeps us from having these complex conversations about things such as the Trinity, as doctrines, as the Trinity. And I can't help but wonder, as I was reading this story this week, I can't help but wonder if Nicodemus could relate to the angst that we feel at times. I wonder if he could relate to that. Because we read that Nicodemus, who, as you read, was a Pharisee, he was a prominent leader among the Jews, he visits Jesus late at night. And a lot of people really like to, you know, we just tend to go after people sometimes. And a lot of times I've heard that being taught like, oh, man, Nicodemus was just so ashamed and afraid that he goes to Jesus in the secrecy of night. And I've heard that kind of being discussed in a not so pleasant light. When I look at that, though, I wonder how many Christians can relate to that. How many Christians feel like they have hard questions for Jesus? They have hard questions for God, and they're wrestling with deep concepts they've heard or learned, like Nicodemus. I think he's wrestling with some things that he's seen in Jesus, that he's heard about Jesus, and he has questions for Jesus, questions that he cannot talk about openly in the circle of his Pharisee friends. There was no room for this kind of dialogue among the Pharisees. There was no room for these kinds of wonderings and conversations. And so I can't help but think that Nicodemus was driven to approach Jesus in the dark of night because who else is he going to talk to about these things? Who better to talk to about these things? And I just wonder sometimes how many of us also feel like we have to do this in secret or private because there's simply no space in our religious circles to talk about complex things like the Trinity among other things. But if we go back to the story, the passage, we, we notice that very first statement by Nicodemus that he's wrestling with. It's not really a question, although I feel like there's a question hidden in there, but instead he wrestles with this openly. He says, Jesus, or Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Uh, for no one could perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus' first pondering, if you will, is that Jesus must be from God. How else can he do these things that he's doing? And Jesus quickly affirms him. He quickly affirms him by saying, very truly, I tell you, but really what Jesus is saying there, he's using the Hebrew word, amen, amen. That's the literal word that Jesus says. He's affirming what Nicodemus has just said. Oh, great. Okay, so I got that right. Jesus is from God. Jesus just affirmed it. Oh, but wait, there's more. There's more. Jesus goes on to begin to talk about crazy things like being born again, being born uh, of the Spirit, being born of the Spirit before one can enter into the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is essentially doing is he's repeating this a few different ways. He's saying the same thing in a few different ways to try to help Nicodemus understand. But I'm afraid what's happened is that in Jesus answering one question, yes, I am from God, 
he's kind of opened up several more questions for Nicodemus. Just as he affirms one thing that Nicodemus was thinking about him, now he's bringing in this third person, the spirit. What is happening here? And, and I have so many questions, Jesus. Like, how does this work? What are you saying? Surely you're not implying that a person must re-enter into the mother's womb. Because that's the only thing I think of when I hear this word born, as Nicodemus might be thinking. But essentially, Nicodemus asked the question I think that we all have. And that is, how can this be? When we think about things like the Trinity, like the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, I think we're just thinking most of the time, how can this be? What does this mean for me? Nicodemus, I would imagine, is essentially asking, what are you saying, Jesus? What are you saying? How can this be? And here's what I think Jesus is essentially saying. This is one humble interpretation, one way of understanding after doing a lot of reading this week. I think that so often we, like the Pharisees, every now and then we got to, you know, do a little reflection. I think we, church people, Christians, evangelicals, I think we want to represent God. And a lot of times we think we know God and that we are his representatives when really I think there are times, I'm going to say it, don't get mad at me, I think there are times when we actually don't look much like him at all. There are times, I'm not saying always, I'm not, you all look you all look like God. You all look like Jesus. But there are times. I think there are times where this is what we want. But it, if we were to look in the mirror, if we were to hold up a mirror and we look at ourselves, I don't know. There are some times where I would say, ooh, that doesn't look like God. That doesn't look like God. And by not reflecting the Imago Dei, as we like to say in pastor circles, that just means the image of God, by not reflecting the image of God as his children, as his witnesses, the kingdom of God is not being seen. And if the kingdom of God is not being seen, then it's probably not being made known to others. See, I think perhaps by believing this false idea that we know all the things that we've checked all the boxes, we've accomplished all the things that good Christians ought to accomplish, we think that we are participating in the kingdom of God. When in reality, sometimes I think that getting so caught up in the things, the reality is that we are missing what God is doing and therefore missing the kingdom of God that is at hand. And I think Jesus was trying to tell Nicodemus, encouraging Nicodemus, you, a Pharisee, a teacher, you think you know all the things, but clearly you don't. I don't think Jesus is ridiculing him. I, just, I think Jesus is trying to help him see himself in a better light. You don't know all the things, Nicodemus. And I think that he was trying to move Nicodemus from a theory, something he thought he knew about God, to practice, to participation. Here's how you participate in the kingdom of God. And so he says that the only way one can do this, the only way one can do this is to be born from above, as Jesus says. Meaning not born by blood, not being born by flesh, not resembling our earthly parents, 
but being born of God, being born of God's spirit and resembling him. And we are invited, think about it, we are invited into a divine rebirth, a divine transformation that is oftentimes represented and seen in our baptism. We are invited into this and therefore we are willing to be divinely transformed to better reflect the image of our Father, the image of God. And no matter what you call it, You can call it being born again. You can call it being born of the Spirit, being born from above, being born from God. No matter what you call it, it's not just a new start. Although it is a new start, it's not just, it's not only a new start. It is a new image. We now bear the image, not of our earthly parents, but the image of God, our creator. And so therefore, just like someone might look at my Nora, my little Nora, and say, oh, you have your mom's eyes or her sassy attitude. Or just like someone might look at Jonah and say, oh, you have your daddy's smile or his quiet personality. Just like someone might look at my children and see me, when someone looks at us when we are born of God, they will say, oh, you have your father's heart. Oh, you look so much like your father when you care for the least of these. Oh, you look so much like God when I see this fruit of patience within you and this fruit of love and kindness within you. Or, oh, I see the nature or the spirit of God when I look at you. That's what it looks like to be born above or born of God or born in the spirit. And Jesus says that it's Only when we are born again in this way that one can enter into the kingdom of God and participate in the coming of the kingdom. And you and I, friends, you and I are invited to be born of God, God the Father. You and I are invited to follow the way of King Jesus You and I are invited to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. And it's only through the triune God that will sustain us along the way. It's only the triune God that sustains us along the way. And here's the thing. We can and we probably will continue to try to perfectly understand exactly how this happens. And we will probably continue and try to continue to understand exactly what the Trinity means. See, we'll continue to try try to understand things like, well, the triune God has always been and will always be. We will try to understand things like God as the giver of life that we see in Genesis 1 when the Spirit hovered over the waters. And we see this again in Jesus, God's word out, sent out by the Spirit. We will try to understand things like the Spirit is the one through whom God loves, blesses, and empowers his Son. We will continue to contemplate things like, well, the Son goes out from the Father by the Spirit. Are you with me? We'll try to continue to understand things like Jesus called God Father, and he looked like his Father, and when people saw him, they saw God. But wait, Jesus was also God in the flesh, fully God, fully divine, yet fully human, seen and felt by others. We'll try to understand things like later God's spirit would come and dwell within his church, empowering them and igniting them to go out into the world. We'll try to continue to understand things like the Holy Spirit that was seen in creation is seen again and again and again as creation continues to be made new 
you again and again and again. Did you get all that? These are the things we try to perfectly understand and explain to others. But I contend that as much as we try to understand and comprehend, I say it's also crucial that we understand that the Trinity will always be something more. The Trinity will always be something more, more than we could ever understand, more than we could ever explain. And just when we think we have the slightest grasp, something else will come along and stir in our hearts, helping us to see God in a new and fresh way. And we will continue to see the triune God at work in new ways again and again and again. And I don't know where you find yourself today when it comes to understanding the Trinity. You may be someone who says, I am not even close to there yet. I don't even fully accept all of this just yet. You might be somebody who is wrestling, really wrestling, trying to understand what you know and what you've been taught versus how you've experienced God. You might be someone who thinks, and this is really easy to do, you might be someone who thinks, well, yeah, I just, I just don't try to fully understand it. I, it is what it is. I just, it's God. It's the triune God. I don't wrestle with it. I just accept it. But sometimes I think that we are so fixated on understanding every last theological concept. And sometimes I think we are so fixated on trying to protect every last idea and concept that we miss the very invitation at hand. And that is to find ourselves within the Trinity. And you might be a little shocked by what I just said. Are you implying that we are a part of the Trinity? I'm not implying that we are an equal part of God. I'm not implying that we are an equal part of the divine Trinity. But let me share it like this. One pastor says it like this, and I just loved it. She said, the Trinity is a reality to be experienced rather than a doctrine to be explained. Another person or pastor said it like this. When we become too sure of what we know about Jesus or the Trinity, when we believe we've grasped him, that is when we can expect to become undone like Nicodemus. And that undoing might be a very good thing if it allows us to experience anew the miracle of our birth from above into eternal life. That gift of life is from the heart of the Father, breathing the Spirit over us and through us and opening our infant eyes to the Son, our teacher lifted to draw all people to himself and his lesson of love. But here's one of my favorite new ways of of thinking about this invitation to find our place in the Trinity. Richard Rohr has this book called The Divine Dance. And in this book, he talks about this, this piece of art that I'm going to share with you on the screen, or Jim's going to, they're going to share with you on the screen. This piece of art is called Trinity, and it's by Russian, the Russian artist Andrei Rublev, an artist, a Russian artist from the 15th century. And when you look at this image, I want you to just, I know it's kind of far away, you might look it up later on on your phone or something, but I just want you to think about and look at this image and just contemplate it for a moment. See, right here on this side, you have the Father. You have the Father, and he's clothed in gold, 
and his hands are folded, which is a sign of completeness or wholeness. He's God, the creator. He's complete. He's whole. And then in the middle there, you have the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son, God alongside us, which is reflected by his color blue on his clothing. That color blue is said to represent the sea and the sky and how Jesus found his place among us. There's some red on there because, of course, that points to his willingness to suffer the suffering of the world, the mystery of the cross. And there's also gold on his sash because of the victory found in the resurrection. And before we move on to the spirit, I want you to take a moment to notice that the three are sitting around a table. I love that. I love that they are sitting around. This is not a modern piece of art. This is from the 15th century. And here is the Trinity sitting around a table eating from a common bowl. I can't help it, and maybe you think this is crazy, but I look at this picture and I think of the word we keep thinking about. I think of community. Look at the community that is seen in the Trinity. This is a community of love. It's a divine community. And then we see the Spirit right here. God, the Holy Spirit. And you can't see it maybe on the screen, but he's actually wearing a green sash. And I read that the, the green sash represents this, this color, the color green represents the divine photosynthesis that grows everything from within by transforming light into itself. Yes, that's very deep. But he's wearing green. But here's what we really notice if you study this long enough, and this is what art scholars really take notice of, that the, the spirit in this image is appearing to be gazing down or kind of gesturing down towards the center, the bottom center of the painting. What would he be gazing down at or kind of gesturing down? It's almost like he's extending his hand, art scholars say. And I learned this week that that on the original piece of art that is in Moscow, that there was once a substance found. There's a, there's a rectangle right at the center bottom. And that there was once this piece of substance that they found on it, and they were really trying to figure out what that could be. And so they actually scraped off some of the substance, and they looked at it under a microscope, and it, and it was said that it was glue that it was like a sticky substance, like glue. And so after thinking about this and, and contemplating, and, and art scholars know things that I don't know, but there is a belief that there was once a mirror glued on that area, that where that, that rectangle is, there was once a mirror. And if that's true, if there was once a mirror there, who knows, but if that's true, then is it possible that the spirit depicted in this painting is gesturing down toward the mirror, inviting us to take our place within the Trinity? Is it possible then that the spirit would then be inviting us to the table, inviting us to find ourselves in God, in the Father, and in the Spirit? And I like how Richard Rohr says, he calls this the divine dance. He refers to the Trinity as this divine dance. And he says that, that we, you and I, are being invited into this divine dance. That we are being invited to take our place and to see ourselves in this divine flow. 
The question is, are we willing to participate? I know that you are good Nazarenes, and you've been told your whole life that you can't dance. I know this. But I am giving you permission. You can, you can come to the divine dance, and you can participate in the divine dance. And in doing so, I'm just saying that in participating, we find ourselves looking more and more like God and reflecting the image we were originally created to reflect. And I also have to share that refraining from participating, because it's a choice, refraining from participating means that we're missing out on a divine invitation. It means that we're missing out on being a part of this divine community of love And it means that we're missing out when it comes to participating and dwelling in the kingdom of God. Friends, the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, it's mysterious. And this is just one way that that an artist contemplated this long ago. You don't have to identify with it. You don't have to embrace this. I'm not sharing this as truth. But the the relationship of the Trinity, it's mysterious, but it's so wonderful. And it cannot be fully described or fully explained. But Jesus, in our passage, he does invite Nicodemus to experience. He does invite Nicodemus. And instead of criticizing Nicodemus for being, you know, kind of ashamed and following Jesus in the darkness of night, I contend that we ought to be more like him. I say we ought to... Come to Jesus humbly, sit at his feet, and be ready to be taught by him and see him in a new way and continue to be challenged by him. Because Nicodemus did this. He took this posture of humility when so many of his friends, their minds were made up and there was no changing their minds. It was unthinkable to take your your wrestlings and your questions to Jesus. There was no room for interpretation. But Nicodemus, he sits at Jesus' feet, ready to learn, open to see, and willing to grow, unlike his religious counterparts. Nicodemus didn't just want to teach about God, but Nicodemus wanted to know God. Nicodemus wanted to know God. May we take the same posture on this Trinity Sunday. We can either continue on in the ways we think we know, or we can just long to know God better. And so may we too continue to wonder about and contemplate the mysteries of God. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. And I just want to invite you as you contemplate these things. I'm not asking you to relearn how you've always viewed the Trinity. And I'm not asking you to try to learn every single thing you can about the Trinity so that one day you can teach it perfectly and help someone understand it perfectly. But instead, I'm just inviting you to take a posture of humility, to sit at Jesus' feet. And I just wonder if we would have a desire to just know him better, know him more in a more intimate way. And may we respond to the invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God, so that when we look out at the world, when they look at us, they will see God.
whose image we were created in. Let's contemplate these things this morning.
Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, would you continue to help us as we wrestle with this invitation to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, to be born of God? This is a divine invitation to not only enter into the kingdom of God, but to be participants, but to partner with God in helping the world to see and find God. Lord, help us as we continue to wrestle with with difficult concepts such as the Trinity. Lord, we recognize that you are the giver and sustainer of life and that you make yourself known to us in these different ways. And God, rather than trying to understand every last little bit of how that's possible and what it means, help us, Lord, to just humble ourselves once again and to experience you in new and fresh ways so that we can see you and know you more. Help us with these things, Lord. God, we love you and we thank you for the grace you give us as we wrestle through these difficult things together. Thank you for making yourself known to us, Lord. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I was thinking about how sometimes in sermons, or or oftentimes I like to give you something that you can do, a way that you can go and kind of put the message into practice. And I thought, well, I don't really know how to do that when we're talking about the Trinity. I don't really know what to tell you to go and do in order to better understand the Trinity. But I will say this. So last week was Pentecost, right? Last week was Pentecost, and we celebrated God giving the church the gift of his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is within us. And so I want to give you kind of a challenge or a practice this week that you could hopefully participate in. I want to challenge you to maybe think about going and flying a kite. For some of you, maybe it's been a really long time since you've flown a kite, especially if you don't have small children around. Maybe some of you have never flown a kite, and if you never have, I would really like you to video it so that we can all see you fly a kite for the very first time, because that could be kind of interesting. But I want to challenge you to fly a kite, maybe in the next few days, if you find a windy day. That's not hard to do, I feel like, around here. But as you do, I want you to think about this kite as it's being supported and flown all about by the wind. I want you to remember, as you're watching that kite, remember to open yourself up to the Spirit's divine activity in your life. And I want to invite you to participate in some way this week. And if you can't fly a kite, I understand that. If you can't fly a kite, look for another opportunity to experience wind in the next day or so. I would imagine that tomorrow you're going to see a lot of flags being flown about, a lot of American flags. I challenge you to pause and just watch that flag as it blows in the wind. Maybe just stand there and and feel the wind. Watch it as it blows the trees or the grass. No matter how you experience the wind in the next day or so, I want you to, to use that time to ponder how you are being swept up into the activity of the triune God. And I want you to reflect on whether you're fighting against that or whether you're being moved by that. Amen? Let us know if you do that this week. Share about it, maybe on on Facebook or something, and I would just love to see how you guys are doing that.